0: Hey everyone and welcome to the 49th episode of The Liam McCollum Show. All right, so my friend Reed Coverdale joined me and we talked about his podcast and the success he's getting while being a trucker and recording most of his podcast in the cab of his truck. Then we get into the trucking industry and all of the different regulations that are hurting small businesses and blue collar workers. And then afterwards, we get into libertarian unity. So stick around, subscribe to me on YouTube, give me a five star rating on Apple Podcasts, and then subscribe to me on Spotify. If you like the show, share it around. And then if you want to find Reed's information, I'll link to it all in the description of this podcast. Podcast. I hope you enjoy this interview. And here's Reed. All right, so we've got the naturalist capitalist Reed Coverdale. Welcome to the show, man.
1: Thanks for having me on, Liam.
0: Yeah, um, we were just talking behind the scenes. Um, you're not on the road right now, but you're a trucker, and you're only home about once a week. What's what's that lifestyle like as a podcaster? Um, well, it's
1: it's actually more conducive to it than you would. Think think, but there are definitely complications you run into. Uh, It's great for the intake of information because you can listen to podcasts or books on tape. Like Usually if I'm going to have someone on I haven't had on before who has a podcast, I'll listen to, I don't know, some of their podcasts before I have them on. And then I can listen to books or listen to the news or whatever to intake information. So that half's really nice. The uh, hard part is scheduling because I do like all of my shows live and uh, you know, having service wherever you are, that's always a challenge. I've, uh, as I was telling you, there's only been one um, meeting I haven't made it to. I've been able to connect with all the other ones, but it's, uh, it's challenging to be able to find a spot where you're going to have good enough service to stream from And, um, you know, if you run into traffic or you blow a tire or something that like throws your whole schedule off right there. So it's, uh, I don't know, it's on the edge. It's exciting. So
0: (laughs) yeah, definitely. And you've been rolling interviews out like crazy. You've been appearing on big Liberty guys's shows. So it's really impressive. You're gaining traction as a podcaster in the libertarian movement. What do you attribute to that success? And I guess, what do you think people resonate with? Um, Well, I'm not
1: a scholar. I didn't go to college. I'm just a blue collar worker. But I'm pretty in tune with what's going on in the world. And it's just from paying attention. And so I'm proof to the average person that you can know what's going on, you can inform yourself, and you can make a difference. And you don't need to be a genius or to be someone who's doing nothing but keeping up with the news. Like I work 60 hours a week and I can do this. So if I can do that, you can do it. And I think a lot of people like that.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think part of it is also just, you know, a lot of people hear about these regulations that blue collar workers have to go through and all of this stuff. And I mean, I've heard you talk about theory, the difference between theory and actually experiencing it. And like, just to see someone who can actually understand the theory and also have experienced all of these regulations and stuff. Like, I think that really helps.
1: Yeah, it's cool to be able to um, talk with people who are theorists on my show about things that I've actually experienced, because there are a lot of blue-collar people who listen to these guys, but it it might, for the most part, be just out of a book or, you know, them talking with some other philosopher or some other author or something so i think they like seeing the connection of an actual guy who lives in the blue collar world trying to you know keep the economy going actually talking to these experts and it's uh it's a good place for me to be because i uh i'm not an expert so you know being the guy that talks to the expert about what's going on is a good middleman position for me but i think it uh it almost dumbs it down enough for like the average person to watch it and really understand what we're talking about. And it gives them something to grasp onto that relates to the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that actually goes to like, I mean, you're keeping the economy going. And that reminds me of some statistic I heard a couple of days ago. Um, I think unemployment now, you can actually earn around $16 per hour on unemployment. Um, and I'm just curious, like, have you seen the effects of the lockdown, this unemployment and people just not working in your, in your work schedule? So
1: my work schedule hasn't really been affected by the coronavirus. It's actually just been increased by it because I move heavy equipment. I don't, I'm not like a freight shipper, but, uh, with the housing boom from everyone moving out of the cities and all these, uh, you know, subdivisions going up. We've just been moving excavators all over the place like crazy, moving pavers, bulldozers, just any, you know, all that random type of equipment to build all these subdivisions. Um, So yeah, I haven't even, I haven't seen any defects in my field. I think uh, the freight shipping actually has had more of a boom than I have because they just, especially when the lockdowns first happened, you know, everyone else was going out of work they were going double time you know they had regulations lifted temporarily so they could get everything to the stores on time so being a truck driver hasn't been the best place to see the bad effects of the lockdowns and bailouts and unemployment just because we've been so busy that we haven't had time to notice it really um, but I have heard about it like bringing things to job sites and talking to other people I've heard of the I mean it's, it's kind of obvious I don't know why anyone would be surprised by it and you know only the evil people were talking about it when it was first introduced the idea that we pay people to stay home it was like okay uh, how are you ever going to phase this out you know like once you start paying people and you're a politician who wants to get re-elected how are you going to jump that hurdle there's no way you will and we're kind of seeing that like no one's willing to be the bad guy. Like Joe Manchin's the big bad guy because he wants to spend a tiny bit less than the rest of the Democrats do. If you're someone like Rand Paul, who's actually a conservative, then you know you're you're literally the devil. So <laughs> I don't really see how we're gonna get out of this at this point.
0: <laughs> has has anything changed like when you go to a way station? Do they operate differently there?
1: Um so in Utah, the restrictions have been lifted for coronavirus, like there's no mask mandates or anything like that anymore. But when that was all first getting started, uh, it was actually kind of nice for dealing with the DOT and the weigh stations, because they weren't allowed to have as many people in the building. And they didn't want to have to walk outside. So it was very rare that they'd pull you over. But now they're starting to get kind of back to normal. So unfortunately you got to deal with them again but that, that was the one really nice thing about mask mandates was not having to deal with the cops as much <laughs> other than that it kind of sucked so
0: yeah and then you got in touch with me a couple of weeks ago because you had stopped through Wyoming and there was a pretty terrible like I guess illustration of bureaucracy uh, do you want to just explain what happened there and then we can kind of jump into some other regulations and stuff
1: yeah sure so that actually happened. I think in December, um, I, I sent you the video a couple of weeks ago, but that was in, I think December of last year, um, I was driving from Colorado back to Salt Lake City. So I had to go through Wyoming and on I-25, right before you get to Cheyenne, when you go over the Wyoming border, there's a way station there and they're just, they're terrible. Like they, <laughs> they get you for the dumbest infractions ever. If they want to stop you, they'll just find something or make something up. And that's basically what they did to me. Um, In Wyoming, you're not allowed to haul more than one unit if you're overweight. And if you are hauling two units, they need to be in working operation with each other. So in other words, if you're hauling um, an excavator, you can't have two buckets with it if it's overweight. You can only have one that's on the machine ready to go. Um, So I had a crusher that weighed, I think 70,000 pounds. And I was bringing it back to Salt Lake and I got to the weigh station and stopped on the scale and they came out and they started opening all the compartments and they found uh, a few wrenches that um, are needed to get the machine going as for opening some tray or something. And so they're completely necessary for the machine but they were calling them a separate unit when we're talking about like a few hundred pounds at most (laughs) you know, and I have dunnage on the trailer and I have chains on the trailer and binders and all this extra stuff that actually weighs way more than these few wrenches, but they don't care about that at all. Um, (laughs) you know, so it was just a completely dumb reason to pull me over, but they said, uh, yeah, you can't go anywhere until you offload those wrenches. And I said, okay, can I leave them here in the weigh station for someone to get with a pickup truck later? And they're like, nope, you can't leave anything in the waste station. You can throw them in the dumpster or you can call someone else to come get them. And so these wrenches were specialty wrenches. So they cost like $700 a piece. So it's not like we can just throw them out. So we had to call a towing company that was like 10 miles down the road. And he came with a, like a one-ton uh, wrecker. <laughs> we just offloaded these three wrenches into his one-ton and then they let me keep going. But I was stuck there for like four or five hours. So um, then I just got to the next uh, truck stop down the road after they let me go. And he was just waiting for me there. And then we just threw him back in because <laughs> there's no there's no way station the rest of the way through Wyoming. Yeah. By the letter of the law or what we told them we were going to do was just have him drive those wrenches all the way to Salt Lake City, which obviously would be absolutely stupid. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it was just... Uh, they didn't even find us. I don't think that time they just gave us a we had to buy an extra permit. Uh, so it was just like another 50 bucks. Um, so they didn't even make money off of it. It was so obviously just a power play, you know, like we can stop you and we can tell you what to do. I mean, if you think about it, they put an extra driver on the road, they burned more fuel. Uh, it was more damage to the road overall, because you've got an extra vehicle that you don't need. And Uh, I could have been hauling a machine that weighed like 20,000 pounds more than the machine I had, and that would have been legal. But, you know, I got these few hundred pounds of wrenches in a secure toolbox that's welded to the machine, and that's not okay. And yeah, so I was really pissed about that one.
0: Yeah, I I was just going to ask that, like, whether or not there was any incentive for them to do that, or if they were literally just flexing their authority or whatever, Um, and it seems like they were. I don't understand why. I mean, because it appears that these regulations just make people robots and kind of just like ignore reason. Like that just seems common sense that you should be able to drive with a wrench. Like why, why pull someone over for that? It doesn't make a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, it has the unintended effect of making you be compliant instead of intelligent because if you just had to be intelligent, you'd be thinking about like, okay, is my load secure? Am I not like ridiculously overweight? Are my axles spaced pretty well? You know, you'd be thinking about common sense stuff. But now you've got like a hundred things you've got to keep track of. And it takes your eye off the general picture of safety or reason in general. So you 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 end up being a robot and you stop thinking about the big picture. You just think about each checklist item that you're supposed to reach. Uh, I don't know if you watch Mike Rowe at all or um, have ever seen any of his stuff, but that whole safety third thing he talks about, like safety isn't number one. And if you uh, try to make it number one, or if you try to make like all these crazy regulations and rules you have to follow, you take your eye off the ball and you're not being safe anymore. And he's dead on with that. That's exactly what happens. And um, it, 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 I don't know, like if if you want someone to read a regulation, um, you know, keep it short and sweet. I was on the safety team um, at the company I worked for before I was truck driving. And we would have these things the first Monday of every month and they were called toolbox talks that every crew was supposed to read. And when I was on the safety committee, I was telling the safety officer like, hey, if you're gonna write these things, I know you feel great if you make them three and a half pages long but nobody's going to read them and they're certainly not going to internalize any of the information. If you can condense that all into like two and a half paragraphs on one page, make it very concise and short and to the point, then they'll actually read it first of all, and they'll actually pay attention to what you're talking about. The more exaggerated and drawn out you make everything, the less anyone will pay attention to it.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty close to the trucking industry just because I have some family members in it. When I think of of really bad regulations that the DOT comes out with, I think of like the e-logs and stuff like that, like um, the hours that you're allowed to work. Is there one that's worse than that? So the hours you're allowed to work actually aren't that unreasonable
1: as far Mm -hmm. as like 70 hours in an eight-day period. Like Not too many people are going to want to work much more than that. What's dumb is the exactness of it. So if you are one second over your time on driving, it'll show up in your log and you can get a violation for it. You know, they can write you a citation. That's what's really dumb. Like before the ELDs, you were keeping to pretty much 70 hours a week, but if you were gonna be 15 minutes late to your destination, it wasn't a big deal because you would just write that you got there at an exact time. And same with like your lunch break. Like if you didn't want a lunch break, you just skip it and you just write it in on your log. Like you can't do that anymore. You have to follow everything by the letter. So if um, if you know you're going to be five minutes late to the truck stop you're trying to get to, that's an hour away and there's nowhere to stop in between where you are and where that truck stop is, then you have to be like, well, I guess if I'm really going to obey the law, I just have to stop here for the night. And I'm going to waste 55 minutes of driving that I could have had. Um, Or I'm going to really gun it and I'm going to speed and I'm going to go as fast as I can and try to find a parking spot so I can get there and log out without getting in trouble. That to me is like the really backwards dangerous part of the ELDs is because you you can't fudge it any way anymore. Um, And there were people who would work 100 hours a week before the ELDs came out, but that's not really the biggest part. The biggest part is really just like the exactness that you can't botch anymore. And it it makes people either take risks or it makes them really inefficient because they know they're not gonna make it somewhere to the second, you know?
0: Yeah, because I mean, when I think about it, it seems as if the intended purpose is to keep people off the road if they're tired, if they need a break. But if you think about it, it's like, it actually might make people rush. If they are tired, they can't pull over because the clock's running down and they have to make it to a destination before that clock runs out. Is is that kind of your analysis of it?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, 100% because, I mean, say you've been working, say you've had like a really hard day and when you loaded up, it was really physically exhausting or whatever. So you wanted to quit half an hour early the first day and you're like, oh, I'll just work an extra hour tomorrow and make up for it. Like, you can't do that. You It's all completely regimented for you. You have to do everything within the confines of what the digital logbook allows you to do. So any human common sense that you would apply to the situation is gone. So yeah, it makes you take risks that you wouldn't take, or it makes you, as I said earlier, uh, unnecessarily inefficient.
0: Yeah. And then do you think that there are a lot of I guess, restrictions on the type of people who can become truckers. Like is is the trucking industry kind of in need of a lot of truckers? And I I got some questions from some people who are in the trucking industry and they're wondering what you think about like the different like screening programs and the different barriers to entry. So from how I understand it, it's actually like a two-part problem
1: um, it, they do make it hard for you to get your license, but then at the same time, they make it so that extremely unqualified people can get a license through like a big trucking company, uh, like, like Swift and Schneider and some of these big companies, they sketchily push people through without really getting them their licenses. I don't even hundred percent know all the ins and outs of it. I've just talked with people who have worked for these companies mm-hmm. and that's how you have someone who doesn't speak any English and doesn't know how to back up a trailer with their license. You know, like all these horror videos you see of trucks trying to back in places where they can't like they, they hire some guy from Jamaica who's been here for two years and they uh, they push him through somehow and get him a license without actually doing any training. Um, I don't really understand how that works, but I know it happens a lot. Um, but at the same time, they make it really hard for you to get your license the right way. So it's sort of a black market incentive almost because they make it so hard for you to get it. If you are a guy who wants to do it correctly and, um, you know, wants to get certified and knows what you're doing. Uh, They're making it harder and harder because they're requiring school in a lot of states now to get your license. And that's like a six to ten thousand dollar deal to get your license. So what's dumb about that also is if you're a blue collar worker, at least for me, the reason I like doing blue collar work is you can try it for a few months and see if you like it. And then if you like it, you can be like, okay, I want to really invest in this. I want to get this certification or I want to get this degree to add on and, you know, uh, get me further down the road in my career here. But what they're doing is they're making it so you have to pay a lot of money up front before you even get involved. So you got to blow six to ten grand on getting a license, and then you've got to work for like two years for a company if you want them to pay it off, or if you want to pay it off yourself, um, you know that's that depending on what your financial situation is, you know that can take you a long time. So they they disincent- they uh, they make less of an incentive for people who uh, who wanna do it the right way and really wanna learn and get their license. And they, they make it uh, into this black market deal where a lot of people who shouldn't be driving end up driving. So you know, typical government involvement, complete blowback and the opposite of what you wanted as a result.
0: Yeah, and I think this goes to the point that like a lot of these regulations actually do benefit large companies and they're the ones who are writing this they they lobbied the government they have the money to change these regulations and you can see how the regulations that you just said would actually benefit them like they're able to pay their people to get an education Um, they're able to afford e-logs they're able to afford training people Um, do you think that that's accurate accurate and do you think like smaller businesses are suffering from it
1: yeah because i uh you know i worked for a company in new hampshire that had like 50 employees And I think I'm not sure, but I think this is the year that they're requiring schooling for licenses in New Hampshire. And if you don't go to school, you have to have a certified trainer at your company. So before I decided I was going to go into full-time trucking, they were actually going to make me the certified trainer so that they wouldn't have to send people to school. So I, you know, I'd be allowed to teach them, um, on site or whatever. But yeah, obviously that makes it way harder for small companies because you know they're looking for people who are trying to start out, but you know, they they can't take people with no experience anymore. They got to try to find someone who has a license already because they don't have the time or the money to hire someone to train you. And then they definitely don't have the money to pay for your license if if they don't know if you're a good worker anyway, you know, like because they could pay for your license. And then you end up sucking at the job and they're stuck with you. Like there's nothing they can do about it. So yeah, definitely that's something that big companies don't have to worry about and it squashes their competition. And that's why you're seeing owner operators and small truck companies just disappear because the big companies can survive. Um, You know, like if I had gotten a $7,000 fine or some stupid thing for that wrench, like that would have, that would have been huge to my boss. Cause we're a company with five trucks, you know, and setting us back four or five hours that already hurt enough. But if they slap a fine on top of that, that's a really big deal. If that's Schneider or Walmart or Swift, like that's, that's nothing. But if you're an independent operator, like you run your own business, you own your own tr- truck. Like that could literally put you out of business. If you hit that wrong, if you're barely making ends meet, trying to get your load on time to where it's got to go uh seven thousand dollars in half a day you know (laughs) that can really tank you so yeah all these things definitely hurt people on the bottom and the ironic thing is they're mostly pushed for uh by democrats who say that they're looking to help the little guy you know and they're against corporate power but then um (laughs) you know all the all the corporations push for these regulations because they hurt competition
0: yeah this this actually goes to my next question because in in this last semester of school, one of my professors actually pointed out the fact that he's been really disappointed with the Democratic Party. And I'm pretty sure this guy leans left. And part of the reason is that they have totally neglected the working class and they haven't mentioned anything of the working class. Like they don't even appeal to them anymore. All right. I, I'm wondering, do you think that like these blue collar workers recognize that? Do you think that they're starting to move away to the Republican Party? Or do you think that there's, still some base there with like unions and, and all of that in the democratic party.
1: Yeah. So unions, I think are the only thing that keep democratic voters, um, within the, you know, the blue collar area because unions, I hate unions. I don't know what you think about them, but, uh, you know, I've dealt with them a lot in the work that I've done, not with truck driving, but with line work. Um, and they enable lazy people to get really secure jobs and, for them to you know, not, not do anything correctly, not do a good job, not take care of their customers, but they don't have to worry because they can't get fired unless they actually do something really bad. So I think there's a lot of incentive for uh, people to vote Democrat within union jobs, but outside of union jobs, I don't think there's any appeal. Because even within union jobs, they're starting to lose their appeal just because they've really bought into the woke shit Um, And they've also become really anti-gun, and I think that just pushes a lot of blue-collar people away. But yeah, once you get out of uh, unionized workplaces, every non-unionized workplace I've worked is way more conservative. Even uh, the roofing company I worked at, they had a lot of Mexicans. Like, they didn't like the Democrats at all, (laughs) you know, like, uh, and that was when Obama was still president. They hated him. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I think the democratic party is getting lazy. Like they're just so obviously not for the little guy. Um, and even though you and I would like disagree with a lot of socialist policies that they used to push for, they don't even push for those anymore. They just do with rhetoric. Like when you look at what they actually end up voting for, it's all corporate bailouts and, uh, stuff that goes to the top. So, yeah, I mean, Trump, You know, as bad as he was, he did sort of fight against that last big stimulus bill that went through when he was president. Um, And I think a lot of people saw that and were wondering, like, okay, who who's the party of the working class here? The one where the president says, hey, cut all this pork out and just send money directly to the people or the party that's screaming at him that he's not signing the bill fast enough. You know, it's just it's been a weird Uh, almost a switch that I've seen happen in the last several years.
0: Yeah, I also wonder if the reason that people are becoming (laughs) dis-unions and stuff like that partially has something to do with, like, public unions and police officers. And I think that this last BLM movement maybe showed what unions can do and how they can, like, protect bad workers. Um, But that's just a side point. I'm not really sure. I don't have any evidence of that. Um, but I'm I'm curious yeah. though you you were talking about these parties and and people leaving and you've actually become a libertarian. Um, do you want to maybe talk about that process uh, that got you there? I was gonna ask if you you were like a neocon before if you were a conservative, um, and then I saw that picture of you holding the Cheney <laughs> sign. Oh yeah. <laughs> so what's the story there? How how do you become a libertarian?
1: Yeah. So I was pretty young in that picture you're talking about, but I was a neocon conservative um, in high school. And then when I registered to vote, I registered as a Republican. And then the first couple of years, I was still pretty dyed in the wool, neocon, conservative, hardcore right winger. Uh, And it was actually the, let's see, like there were empirical influences and philosophical influences that started changing my mind. So the empirical one was actually mostly with the police. And then later on with just different forms of law enforcement, like park rangers, forest rangers, border patrol agents. Like I just, I, I started garnering this uh, real distaste for law enforcement that I didn't have in high school because I, I didn't do drugs or anything in high school. I wasn't uh, a skateboarder like Scott Horton. So, you know, I just never had, <laughs> I'd never had any run-ins with the cops that made me hate them until I started working, like, until I became a truck driver, um, and, um, you know, had to deal with them on that front, and then when I was traveling around the United States, when I took a couple years off, I had a few run-ins with them. I never got arrested, and I never got brutalized, but I was harassed sometimes, and it was just, I, I started really getting sick of them, um, and then philosophical influences, it was, uh, Believe it or not, it was act- Bill Maher was one of them, and I know he sucks mm-hmm. on a lot of issues, but if you're a hardcore conservative, he is someone, especially like back in 2014, he's someone who can make you start questioning some of your conservative values and see how dumb they are, but it was mostly Rand Paul who I started paying attention to in 2014 when he filibustered uh, John Brennan's nomination, and then I also started listening to Kerry Wedler and Peter Schiff. Um, And then I went back and listened to a bunch of Ron Paul's stuff from 2012, because I'd been introduced to those ideas. And just throughout um, 2014, 2015, 2016, I really shifted from Republican to much more libertarian. I'd say I was a moderate libertarian in 2016. I voted for Gary Johnson. Um, And then in 2018, I left the Republican Party. Um, just cause I was so sick of them because, um, you know, they've been in charge for two years and anything good about the Republicans, you know, like w- cutting spending or gun rights or, you know, a- anything that we feel like we should get out of them. We were not getting out of them. Like it was the opposite. We were headed in the wrong direction. We had more gun laws than Obama could have ever hoped to pass. And then we had like higher spending bills <laughs> than the Democrats could have hoped to pass. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'm done with the. Republican party. Um, and I didn't actually, so then I was just independent. I didn't actually join the libertarian party until last year. And, um, it was just because things are getting really, really bad and they're the only party that has any principles. So you can be an independent and you can say like, Oh, I think for myself and I don't want to align with any party or whatever, but th- there aren't enough people who think for themselves out there, you know, and, frankly, a lot of libertarians don't think for themselves, but at least they're thinking things that I agree with, even if they're not thinking for themselves. So I was like, okay, I can jump in with this group and, um, you know, really push for ending wars, lowering spending, you know, ending the drug war, ending the spying. And then after I joined is when, or, you know, when I, around the time I joined was on when all these lockdowns and corporate bailouts were starting. And I was like, oh my God, like they're the, they're the only ones being principled against any of this. So it was just how crazy the country got in the last couple of years uh, was enough to finally get me to join the Libertarian Party, because I thought it was a joke. You know, like I I wasn't. It's funny, like the civil war that's kind of going on right now between like the alt right people and the the communist, you know, like I, I never thought any of those dichotomies were real. It was more just that I didn't think they were serious, that they were a bunch of people concerned about traffic lights and driver's licenses and age of consent laws instead of focusing on the big picture issues. But now we're seeing a push to care about those big issues and kind of put the dumb stuff aside. So I'm actually really glad I joined now and I've never felt better being with any other group of people.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's definitely like an influx of, of kind of these I think Dave Smith put a name to it, kind of like the populist libertarianism that, that the Libertarian Party kind of needed. And yeah. what what I think maybe we should talk about is is last week's controversy or a couple of days ago uh, with, with Justin Amash and his talking with AOC. Um, and I think this goes to what you've been trying to push is this libertarian unity. Um, and how do you think this plays into the conversation that we're having um, about this populism and about whether or not we should be tolerant of people like Justin Amash and, and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, so I was, you know, a pretty independent libertarian. So I'm still not in a caucus, actually. But, you know, I didn't hate everyone that was like in the Nick Sarwark group. And I didn't hate everyone in the Dave Smith group. My thing was like, hey guys, why don't you know we try to get along? And I mean, if if you are someone who's always stabbing someone else in the back and you're um, you know, just a, a pain to be around, then fine, like you you don't deserve unity, like you're you're someone who's not trying to get anything done, you're just someone who's trying to cause problems. But if we are people of good faith, then let's join together and try to do something because it's so obvious who our enemy is and that we are not each other's enemy in this fight. Um, So I would certainly put Justin Amash in that group, I do not look at him as antagonistic at all toward libertarianism, I think he's actually a great asset. In 2020 I was hoping for him actually like when he was talking about jumping in I was going to support him, I publicly said like yeah if he runs he's my candidate. Um, You know, and so people are so binary, they think oh if you would support Justin Amash that means you agree with everything he says. Or the same with like Dave, you know, if you're going to support Dave, you agree with everything he says. I'm like, no, I don't. You know, I'm my own person. I believe what I believe, but both of those guys overlap a lot with me, like, you know, 90%, probably both of them. And so they're both going to have takes I disagree with sometime, but for the most part, like, I really respect what they're doing. And, um, you know, when Justin Amash uh, had AOC come talk to the students, I thought that was great. And I I hate AOC. Like, I think she's a fraud. I don't think she's really a progressive, frankly. I mean, if you look at her voting record, it's very corporate. Um, You know, she talks this democratic socialist game. But then when it comes down to it, she votes for the Heroes Act, the CARES Act, you know, the she talked like she was going to vote against that bill that passed last Christmas. And then she capitulated and voted for it right at the end. Uh, She sheepdogs for the Democratic establishment. So AOC, the person is terrible. I don't, I don't like her at all, but she has a massive group of people who follow her, who are not frauds. Like they don't know that she's a fraud. They're true progressives who care about the environment. They care about poor people. They care about um, making sure that everyone has an equal chance in society or whatever. Those aren't bad things. Like we disagree with them on how we get there, but they're what, what they want isn't bad. So if you can extend an olive branch to AOC and have her come talk with libertarians and show that there's crossover to literally millions of people who are fans of AOC, I don't see that as a bad thing. You know, if you were if he had said something like, AOC is a principled progressive who truly has workers in mind and has a great voting record and cares about people or something like that. Like I would have been like, dude, no, what are you talking about? But just talking to her and trying to open up to the left to have a conversation, I don't think that's bad. And it was a very revealing moment because there are a lot of like the Cato um, Woketarian types who hate it when you talk to the right. But there are a lot of like Mises types who hate it when you talk to the left. And what's so funny is Dave talks to everybody like he talks to the left, to the right. He'll talk to literally like neo-Nazis. He'd talk to communists. Like he'll talk to anyone. But, um, you know, so many people get mad if you break out of their echo chamber and dare to talk with some evil person who disagrees with us. And, you know, I was a neocon. (laughs) And uh, I, you know, I got to where I am from people being willing to talk to me and being willing to explain their ideas to me. This idea that we should only talk to each other or people who are very receptive to our message is dumb, you know, like we should be willing to talk to anyone. Um, And that's what I do on my show. Like I've had progressives on, uh, not too many conservatives have been willing to come on. I've tried to get them to come on, but you know, I'll, I'll talk to anyone and I think libertarians should be willing to talk to anyone, especially if they really believe that what they're standing for is true because you shouldn't be afraid to have conversations with people that disagree with you. If you are, It's a good sign that you either don't know your ideology very well, or or you don't think it stands the test of reason, (laughs) because otherwise you want to talk to everybody you can and show them how reasonable it is.
0: Yeah. And I think especially when you realize that libertarianism is just a set of principles and it's not really the way that Gerard Casey puts it, a professor in Dublin, is libertarianism is kind of like a, a broad church. And you can have like different cultural beliefs within that broad church. Um, as long as you apply the principles to right. values, you know, like, like we should be able to talk to leftists. And I, I do this at my university because it's a pretty progressive city. Um, and, and you should be able to say, this is why decentral, like decentralization is good for leftists. Like it's the Scott Horn principle of attacking the left from the left, attacking the right from the right. And part of that, implies just communicating with them and communicating with these figures when they give you the opportunity who have audiences who might be able to come over to our side if they realize like decentralization is good for decriminalizing drugs um sanctuary cities all of these different things that we can convince progressives are good and then make them realize that these are liberty principles not just like things that we apply in an odd ad hoc fashion when we, when we want to, you know, when we want to uphold our values. So I think, I think you're spot on with that.
1: Yeah. Like we said about the church, cause uh, I grew up very religiously and it's so funny because you have all these different denominations that you would think would get along because they agree with the principle, like Jesus died for our sins. Mm-hmm. And as long as we repent, we can go to heaven. Like to me that w- when I was a Christian, that was kind of all that mattered, But the Episcopalians and the Catholics and the Baptists and the Pentecostals and, you know, everybody just hated each other. Like, if you were a if you were a Baptist, then being a Catholic was like worse than being an atheist. And it's just like, what? Like, come on. Like, you, you guys are so close in what you believe. Like, they pray to a statue of Mary. okay. So, what? Like, you guys both believe in Jesus, you both believe in heaven, you both believe in Satan, you both believe, you know, in the Bible, you you, both believe in like so much of the same stuff, but you turn each other into enemies. And that's exactly what libertarians do. And and, and that's actually, for the most part, why I haven't joined a caucus because I do really like the Mises caucus right now, but I just haven't joined because I don't want to contribute to the, the tribal mentality, you know, and I don't really see the need to join a caucus so i'm just going to stay non-denominational you know just like the christian who's not in a um you know who isn't denominational or whatever i i kind of i kind of like that parallel because it's just so similar um you you would hope that the caucuses could just encourage each other to be better and you know how give people a place that they feel like they could join Um, And I think that might be possible, you know, but we've really got to focus on the bigger picture, which is what the whole idea of Liberty Unity was about. It wasn't saying we're all gonna have the same messaging or we're all gonna have the same audience or we're all gonna say the exact same things. It's actually the opposite. It's like, no, you are gonna have completely different messaging to reach different people. And you're gonna talk to different people because you can like Tom Woods and Spike Cohen are not gonna have the same audiences. They're gonna be successful with different people. But that's okay. Like, I don't want Spike Cohen and Tom Woods to be enemies. I think they can be on the same team while having different styles and different strategies. You can have, um, yeah, I, I just want to clarify what I mean with a different messaging. Like, you can have different ways of advertising as long as you're all selling the same product. Like, if you're all selling knives or wrapping paper or something. And you go door to door trying to sell, like you're all going to have different strategies and different ways of making it appealing. And that's good because you're going to be able to reach different types of people as long as you're selling the same product. So I think we just need to all realize we're selling the same product, that we're on the same team. And, you know, we're going to have by default, we're all going to be different. And that should be good in a liberty movement. You know, like why would we want a monolith? That's what the Democrats and Republicans always want, is everyone to be the same. And they're not, like the Democrats and Republicans have very varied people amongst their ranks. So we should have the most varied people. We should, we should have the hippies, the rednecks, the white collar, the blue collar, the, the stoners, the, the gun nuts, like we should have them all. And they should all realize the big picture of what's going on and be okay with the differences.
0: Yeah, what do you think that the Mises caucus, like, what do you think their main issue was with the Justin Amash tweet? Um, So I don't know if anyone official went after them. I didn't see
1: that. Like, like, I don't don't, know.
0: It was just a bunch of people on Twitter. It it wasn't the official account.
1: Yeah, so, like, I've, what I've realized, because when I first had exposure to the Mises caucus, it was the people, not, like, the official page or dave or tom woods or people like that so much it was just the pollution online and that was what gave me a bad taste toward it initially um i don't think that a lot of people who are online who are in the mises caucus are always in lockstep with what the leaders of the movement or the caucus in general stands for um like i don't think a lot of them have read plank six which is about lifestyle and you know, cause so many Mises caucus people on Twitter are always talking about trans rights. Yeah. And it's just like, guys, just let it go. Like, who cares? <laughs> your, your position is supposed to be that you don't care. <laughs> like, you're, yeah, I mean, if someone wants to uh, transition, you know you can be against it personally, but that's not your place. Like, as long as they're not asking for positive rights as long as they're just asking for equal treatment you shouldn't care. So there's there's like this really weird cultural bias in um, at least online with a lot of members that I don't think is pushed by the actual caucus or by leaders in the caucus. Um, Because Dave Smith tweeted out like, hey, I think it's great that Justin Amash is talking to AOC. And if you read through the comments, it was a ton of like Mises members freaking out at him. Um, and then you know, sometimes the Mises Caucus will tweet something out that pisses off a lot of the members. So I don't know. I think it's uh I think it's just a lot of people who aren't really in tune or probably haven't read the Mises Caucus platform because I actually have and I really like it. Like I don't disagree with any of it. Um, it's just some of the like autistic members within the caucus. It's kind of like the pragmatist caucus, to be honest. Like, I don't have any issues with the pragmatist caucus platform. And I know lots of great people in the pragmatist caucus. And I think Justin Amash is really great. Um, but you have like members who are the Andy Craig, uh, like Archie Flower types who are just toxic. So it, it's, it's a problem that I see on both sides. And um, I think that we should mostly just ignore those people. Like we should make our statements about what I, like, which is what I do. Like I actually have like 10,000 people following me on Twitter now. And I've got almost, I got like 4,500 on YouTube. So I'm at the point where I can say what I think and make a statement. And then I have people who can receive it. I don't need to just be criticizing other people's stances, you know, and that's what so many people do because they either don't have a following or they don't stand for anything. So all they can do is retweet someone else or go criticize someone for saying something. And my deal is like, hey, why don't you try to inject your message? You know, that, that's what's been going on with like that whole water fountain meme that came out the other day. Like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the same thing when the LP of Kentucky said the thing about the stars or whatever. Like, I, both times I was freaking out at everybody and being like, hey, you guys have both forgotten what this conversation was supposed to be about. You know, it was supposed to be about vaccine passports a month and a half ago. And this time it's supposed to be about medical segregation which is already happening. You know, so let's get back to talking about that. And if you think that LP National didn't tweet something that was edgy enough, like then tweet something edgier. Or if you think that the Mises Caucus was too edgy, then make your own tweet that's not quite that edgy and you know, try to push for a certain narrative that you believe in instead of just going around criticizing everybody else for what they're doing. Um, so it kind of goes back to what I was talking about in the beginning, how I do think there are libertarians who don't think for themselves too. they're just, they're sheep in the right movement, which is better than being a sheep in the wrong movement, but it's still troublesome sometimes.
0: Yeah. And I think when I look back to why the Mises caucus wanted to be a thing and why we, we said that we wanted to subsume the party and make it our own. Part of the reason was because we had these people who would point to Ron Paul and say, why libertarianism is more than Ron Paul, why he did not fit this message. And it seems like we're falling into the same trap by pointing to other people and saying that they're not libertarian enough. When really like we should want as much people as we can. Like we should want everyone coming into the party that, that we can get. Because I, I guarantee you Republicans and Democrats, they don't they don't care. They they want numbers. Yeah, exactly. They want voters. And that's what we should yeah. be looking for.
1: Yeah, like I think we should be very friendly toward um, Mike Lee, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, you know, like people on the right and left who are close who aren't there, but they're close like we should be very cordial and open to them and try to keep open dialogue with them and then for their supporters as well instead we tend to want to just go after our differences and be like, well, you know, Tulsi supports gun control and Medicare for all, or, or Mike Lee's, you know, hundred percent pro-life and he wants border security. It's like, okay, yeah, I know. So they're not like all the way where we are, but we should be open to them and open to their supporters and keep dialogue going because the other two parties are so bad and they're really pushing a lot of people away. So instead of, um, Instead of isolating ourselves and just pushing anyone away that has any of the same tendencies, we should try to meet them where they are and pull them closer to us. You know, I mean, just meeting people where they are doesn't do anything because then they stay where they are. But if you can show them where you have common ground and then after you've established that common ground and they realize you're a human, not some weird you know, idiot that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have anything in common common with them. After that, then you can be like, so see, if you're a conservative and you think school choice is a great thing, can you realize why a monopoly on violence is a bad thing? Or if you're a progressive who realizes that the war on drugs is a terrible failed strategy, like, can you realize that also with guns, like how that hasn't worked, you know, and try to bring people in? And I honestly do get a ton of attacks from both sides whenever I try to do either one. Because I I did make a lot of Tulsi supporters into libertarians. And I wasn't mean to her because I think she's great on a lot of stuff. And so, you know, I mean, she'll occasionally say something really scary that I'll definitely criticize. But for the most part, I'm very supportive of her. And then even like Rand Paul, I think he's kind of a sellout fraud. But for the most part, like I I'm friendly toward him and his supporters because most of what he has stood for and what his supporters believe in. Is stuff that I believe in. So, why would I just, you know, completely trash them and try to push all those potential libertarians away?
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And I think the biggest thing that we can do is show them exactly what is consistent with libertarianism that they believe. Like something that you've been really effective at pointing out is like um, just the way that you you say like all of these people at the way stations are cops, all of these different people, and all of these federal bureaucracies are cops like your use of that language is so good because a lot of progressives they don't like cops but they love the enforcement arm of the federal government and their cops too like the fbi is full of cops the dot is full of cops and then you've also pointed out how republicans essentially hate the laws but they love the enforcement arm so i think you're doing a really good job in that in that respect
1: yeah, I mean, in my general messaging, I'm not tempered at all. Like, I'm very, I, I'm very straightforward. Like, I've, you know, when I talk about the police, you would never mistake me for someone who likes the police. If I talk about wars, you would never mistake me for someone who's pro-war. If I talk about the drug war, you would never mistake, you know, like I'm. It's very obvious where I stand. But if I have someone on my show who disagrees with me. I'm not going to talk to them like they're evil or like they're idiots. So I'm going to have mm-hmm. a normal human conversation with them. And then the other thing is just because I'm principled and I have like these radical ideas of where we could be one day, that doesn't mean like moving in that direction, even if we don't get all the way there is bad. You know, like if we could defederalize the police or at least like demilitarize the police, even if we still have... Law enforcement as a government thing that's community run, that's so much better than where we are now. Or if we could like cut spending down to a third of what it is now, like even if we don't end up with no government or something, you know, it's like, okay, but we're doing so much better. Like if we could bring all the troops home, but we don't get out of the UN, like, okay, we didn't get all the way that we wanted to, but we are so much better than where we were before. And so many libertarians look at that as moderation. It's like, no, you can always push for your ideal and always be pushing the needle in that direction. But realizing that you might not get all the way there is just reality. And it's, that, that's true pragmatism. You know, like, I think pragmatism has been confused with moderation because moderation is watering down your message and saying, this is what I want when really you want something else, but you're just going to say, no, this is all I want, really. Uh, Pragmatism is like, okay, this is what I want, but, you know, if we can do this today, let's do this, and let's do this, and let's move the needle in the right direction. There's nothing wrong with pragmatism. Um, I actually think Ron Paul was pragmatic. You know, he was a pragmatic radical. Like, he had radical ideas of where we should be but he was able to say okay we can get this done let's do this now and I, I kind of think the same way about Justin Amash honestly Dave Smith I think he's pragmatic and radical like he's talking about important stuff right now I haven't heard him talk about ages consent laws or traffic lights at all like I don't think that's really a pushing uh, uh, a serious issue to push for right now um so I think, that's what a lot of libertarians have to do is they got to realize that pragmatism and radicalism are allies. Like they should go together. They're not, not opposites.
0: Yeah. And I think a really good illustration of that is like simply just Ron Paul saying that heroin should be legal in South Carolina. And then everyone applauded because they understand liberty as a principle. So I think you're spot on with that. And I tried tweeting that out about the Dave Smith thing when he got, when he got canceled and it actually blew up. Like, like when they tried canceling about what two thirds of parents agree with, you know, I mean, it, it's obviously capitulating to the seemingly loudest person in the room. Isn't always pragmatic because right. they're not the majority of people.
1: Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about what we believe because in my mind, it, it it all makes sense. Like um, I arrived here through reason. I didn't just one day say like, Hey, I want to be a libertarian. What do they think? Okay. I'll say that from now on, you know, it was like, I I wasn't there on anarchy a a year ago. Like I have gotten there over the last year. I wasn't there on, um, you know, completely getting rid of all drug laws and all gun laws a couple of years ago, but I got there, you know, like it was a slow journey with everything. And now I'm where I am, where I'm basically an anarchist. And I just think that the government causes like all these problems and that we can get along without a power structure to throw us in a cage if we don't follow arbitrary rules. But not everyone's going to get there on day one. But that doesn't I mean, your message can make sense. Like I had a conversation with my uncle about the police a couple of weeks ago, and it was the school choice versus police choice thing. And he's like a neocon hardcore right winger. And at the end of the conversation, he was like, hmm, you know, that really makes sense. I kind of want to think about that a little bit more where I could have been like, oh no, you know, I don't want to get rid of the police. Like, I I think the police are great. We just need to touch it around the edges. No, what I said was like, I don't think we should have the police at all. Like, I think it should be a free market system where we can hire our own uh, protection, you know, different neighborhoods, different companies, different individuals can choose which force they want to use. And then we can also fire people and prosecute people and get people thrown in jail. Uh, and I said, but you know, we should at least get rid of qualified immunity and get rid of no-knock raids and end federal funding of the police and demilitarize the police for a start. So in that conversation, I had like the radical end goal, which makes sense ideologically, and the pragmatic goals that we could reach right away. And that left my uncle, who's like a super hardcore right winger, with questions and interest in the conversation going forward. So I I think people just really need to realize that you you have to have principles you're standing on and ideals that you're shooting for, and then also realize what you can get done at any given moment. And that's how you're going to resonate with people, because they're going to see that you have bright ideas, but you also know how we're going to get there. Because if you just say like, oh, we shouldn't have the government. And then someone says, okay, so what do we do tomorrow? (laughs) And you don't have an answer. Then you're just an idealist. And you're someone who has no idea how we're going to facilitate any of our plans in the future. So, you know, it's important to educate yourself, know about current events. Because if you're just an anarchist who says like, well, I don't know, I don't believe in the government anyway. So none of this really matters. Like, you're not being helpful to the situation or the conversation. Like, educate yourself on what's going on, how we can phase out the state, and give people answers because that's what they're looking for. Like, they're not most of them aren't looking for ideology. Um, you know, it, <laughs> geeks like us are into ideology. Like, we like the we like the philosophy of it and thinking about it. Most people aren't there. They want to know like, how am I going to get my kid through college next year? So, if you can answer that then they'll listen to you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Reed, if there's anything else that you want to say um, to the audience, if there's anything else that we didn't hit on, please please bring it up and then we can let you go. All right, well, yeah, thanks for having me on, Liam.
1: Um, <clears throat> I found you, what, like two or three months ago. I had Scott Horton on the first time and I noticed you had been talking to him a bit. You'd had him on a couple of times already. So I watched your interview with him um and i'm sure you know scott's like the easiest guy to interview you just say hey scott syria and then you know there's two hours right there you can just or or he could even talk about like just the soleimani airstrike for three hours like so he's great he's really easy to interview but uh yeah thanks for having me on um i'll have to get you on my show at some point uh everyone can go check out my show I'm I'm the only Reed Coverdale and the only Naturalist Capitalist out there. So any platform, look up either of those, but mostly subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is the Naturalist Capitalist, and then uh, follow me on Twitter at Reed Coverdale, and you can keep up with me there. And yeah, that's about it.
0: All right, awesome, Reed. Thanks for coming on.
1: You got it.